Speaking, actually, Hafiz is at a coffee shop <laughs> somewhere in Singapore <laughs> where he yep. hides out to to I think think about all his projects. He just called it his Shangri-La. So <laughs> yeah, and perfect. you know, and and I guess also, of course, his uh, research, you know, his PhD research at the moment. So I've been very intrigued by this because even though I know Hafiz quite well, I think, and we speak uh, quite often with each other, somehow I have never asked him exactly what he's working on on the PhD. So so maybe because we're you know, always we, plotting the next project, right? Yeah. So we we like you know we want to take this opportunity to ask him more about that. You know. So Hafiz, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on? Okay. Uh, actually, it's quite a, uh, a a good timing to ask me about this because mm-hmm. I'm sort of entering my last lab. It's my final final two semesters. Yeah. The, the last year of a four years scholarship. Maybe which, you uh, can tell us where you're doing this, by the way. Uh yeah. I'm. I registered to. I mean, I got. Uh, I mean, I was successful in getting a scholarship at the National University of Singapore. Yeah. So it's a four-year scholarship to to embark on my PhD, which I started in 2017. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, before that, I was uh, with National Gallery Singapore for about six years. Uh. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so um, the scholarship is basically by the Faculty of Arts and Social Science, and I'm located in the Malay Studies Department, which mm-hmm. in itself is an interesting place. To do a PhD on art. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more, like what you, like the details of this research? Yeah. So um, basically, I think if I'm not wrong, I'm like the first art historian mm-hmm. to be hosted by the Malay Studies Department. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because of what I have to offer for the department, right? Mm-hmm. As with all. PhD exercises, mm-hmm. uh, but also because of the how the department is sort of uh, tuned or, or or program, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, okay, first of all, people seem to think that I'm going to be a Malay language teacher, which is of course not, <laughs> right? When they hear Malay studies, uh, you know, at NUS, like, oh, okay, so now you're going to teach the Malay language. I say, no, no, no. <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, the uh, in in essence, the Malay Studies Department is any academic exercises or projects or, or uh, studies that revolve around the Malay world. So it can mm. be anything and and everything, right? You can be a politics student, you and, can be an IR student. May I also like uh, uh, ask uh, for the definition yeah. of the Malay world? You know, because I think it's been always misconstrued. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so from my experience, and you have to bear in mind that it's my first time at NUS. I was never yeah. an undergrad or postgrad there, right? Yeah. So the first year was also about me sort of trying to understand how the department works and how the different professors uh, talk about what they do. Mm-hmm. So for my observation, how they define Malay studies, at least at, at this department, 
uh, of course you know it's the Nusantara, the Malay Archipelago, mm-hmm. or to translate it unfairly, it's the Malay world, right? Mm-hmm. So so if you look at it from that point of view, it can be, you know, you can be doing stuff in terms of nation state. You can bring be doing stuff about Indonesia, Malaysia, mm-hmm. you know, um, southern Thailand, southern mm-hmm. Philippines, mm-hmm. Um, and also because you know religion plays a, a significant part in the Malay world. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there'll be areas where where you know population with a significant Muslim population can also be sort of you know defined or included in this and vast the, and ambiguous Malay world. What's the time period we're looking at for this um, label of Nusantara? For my own PhD project, hmm. uh, I'm looking at, okay, which brings me to the, the, the topic of my research thesis, right? Hmm. So essentially, I'm writing a thesis on the sociology of art hmm. rather than rather than an art historical uh, thesis. Mm-hmm. Because for me, you know, usually when 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 uh, those who I know, when they do, uh, when they pursue art history at the PhD level, it tends to be an art historical exercise. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I need to contribute to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what for me was more interesting is because of my own practice in the past decade or so where I've been involved with institutions, uh, uh, independent projects and all that, mm-hmm. it sort of fit into my overarching interest of this entity called the Singapore Art World. Mm-hmm. Right? So what is it about the Singapore Art World, right? People, you know, people like us and we talk about Art World, right? It's usually, you know, we, we, we know what it means, right? Or at least we have different perceptions of the art world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also because we are all the converted, right? We are all in this art world. So we all sort of assume lazily that we all know what we're talking about. <laughs> but when you but for me when, when I embark on this PhD uh, exercise in an academic setting like NUS, where you are not surrounded by art world people, right? Mm-hmm. You are sort of forced to define, articulate, frame what is this art world that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. So the first few months were frustrating mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, because I'm like thinking, you know, sometimes I think like, don't they, don't they just, you know, get it, you know, the art world is such and such, you know. Yeah. I, I, but after a while, you, you realize that it's unfair. Because, you know, first of all, these professors and academics, they are not entrenched in the art world. You know, they don't, they don't get involved in the workings behind the art world. Yeah. And second of all, as with all academic exercises, it's all about methodologies and definition and framework. So it has been a good exercise for me in the sense that, you know, when you define and articulate things repeatedly, you get a clearer picture of what it is you are trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm doing is uh, a sociology of art paper on this entity called the Singapore Art World, mm-hmm. right? And and it's basically taking off from uh, the work of an uh, American sociologist. Mm-hmm. Not sure whether you've heard of it, uh, but there was this guy, Professor Howard Becker. No, there is this guy. He's still around. I think. <laughs> I think I should, you know. 
con- try to contact him at some point because yeah. he should be quite old right now. Yeah. Uh, he came to prominence in the American uh, sociology world as someone who studied uh, crime, uh, juvenile delinquency. Mm-hmm. So um, he's, he's actually a very interesting character because when I read his biography, he was you know a professor of sociology in the day, mm-hmm. but he was also a jazz pianist, okay. right? Yeah. So you, were, that, you were going to say he was a superhero <laughs> crime fighter, but <laughs> I, I think he might have. Maybe he maybe he viewed himself as as that kind of person, you know. So. So he was a jazz pianist, right? So in the evenings he would be playing in these jazz pubs in, in 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 the US, right? Where I'm not sure whether those jazz pubs were like you know like free jazz or like you know those formal jazz, but mm-hmm. uh, you know he started to observe, you know, being the academic that he would, he is, uh, he started to observe the characters around him in the pubs, and of course you know artists performers, mm. theatre makers would frequent this kind of pubs and then he sort of observed that, you know, these this people, are, this group of people, this social grouping is interesting for him, right? And at the same time, he was a jazz pianist, so of course, you know, he had looked into, mm. you know, the history of jazz and all these kind of uh, factors. Mm. So after a while, he started to conduct a series of lectures in his own university, mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, it was lectures that were based on certain topics. So, for example, he had like um, uh, a topic like um, art and craft, mm. right? And then the next topic would be um, uh, institutions and, and, and non-institutional uh, art makers, mm-hmm. right? And over time, this series of lectures became a book which is called Art Worlds. Mm. You can actually get the book. I think the book was published in 1982. Mm-hmm. So even the structure of the book was interesting because you can read each chapter by its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially, his main thesis is, you know, it this book is not about saying whether you know what is good art or what is bad art, mm-hmm. but it's about understanding the makings and the structures of the art world. Mm-hmm. And I think, in my opinion, how I read the book was. By understanding the art world, mm. you would come to, or at least arrive to understand, to an understanding of why the art we are seeing now is how it is, right? Mm. How does, so how by does, using, sorry, uh, how does yep. this relate to your research on the Singapore art mm. world? Yeah, so, how, so yeah. <laughs> one of the main questions that sort of bothered me for the longest time was this question, uh, which is, what what is Singapore art, right? Mm. You know how what is Singapore art? How is Singapore art? Is Singapore art, uh, you know, there comparable? So you know, it's an innocent and naive question like mm. that. Mm. Um, and you know, when you talk about Southeast art as well, mm. you know, you always tend to talk about the our bigger neighbors, right? Mm. Even even in publications, international art publications and Southeast Asia, mm. I'm sure if you read any chapters or any book, it tends to be you know, dominated by, by our neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, of course, there's a lot of reason for that because a lot of Southeast Asian academics are more skewed or inclined towards studying Indonesia or the Philippines or Malaysia. Mm-hmm. But it led me to the question of can we 
start talking about Singapore art on a on a more serious uh, level or on on a more significant stage. And before you get that, you have to settle what is this thing called Singapore art. Okay. Right. Do, so, do, do you think yeah. that the reason why I mean I've been having this feeling all these years, right? That the yeah. reason why. Uh, as compared to the art of say Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, yeah, sure. uh, and other Southeast Asian countries, probably with the exception of Brunei, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah. you know there's not as much interest in the art coming out from Singapore because uh, there is too little conflict in Singapore, you know, because academics or you know even yeah. curators seem to be attracted to conflicts you know without social or political conflict or even economic conflict you know they, they become a bit disinterested do you think yeah. this is why that's one of the reasons hmm. significant reason you know i mean if you go down that argument hmm. you know historians can even you know Face it way back to like oh because of colonial because of our what you call it the independence uh, from colonialism mm-hmm. uh, I mean the path towards independence right mm-hmm. because Singapore had the least you know resistance mm-hmm. compared to like Indonesia and yeah. Philippines so you know you know our neighbors have always had this you know embedded nationalism mm-hmm. and then whereas for Singapore it has always been. You know, given on a platter, and then mm. uh, you sort of, you know, it's it's more of an engineering kind of project rather mm. than our neighbors, right? Mm. Of course, there's one reason, mm. but also I think it's because with Singapore, the the discourse has always been more on on uh, what do you call that? Uh, it has been more of a industry kind of discourse, you know, industry. Mm policies, uh, nation building, you know, the government, mm, 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 mm. the government and the policy institutional so policy makers has played. Discourse, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the discourse has always been there. Yeah. I mean, my, my thesis is basically not saying that it's good or bad, you yeah. know, but it's, it's just trying to articulate the actual experiences that, you know, that, that make us arrive to where we are now. Mm at least from a historical sense. Can you, can you share with us a couple of key points that you have discovered? You Maybe know? the unexpected ones yeah. through your research? Uh, one of the things that I... I mean, it's not really a discovery for me. I sort of had a suspicion. <laughs> but, but, you know, when, when, when I embark on this Singapore art world... Uh, journey, right? Mm. Of course, the we have to sort of go back to a time when when did this art world started? Mm. I mean, start uh, started forming forming up, right? Mm. When did this currency of the art world started mm. uh, gaining currency amongst the practitioners and the stakeholders here in Singapore? Mm. So, of course, you know you you start to see a more obvious pattern with. With, uh, the, during the colonial period, when you see you know the patrons, the institutions that started forming, you know both formal and non formal, you know the societies and all these kind of factors, um, they were there, right? So that was when 
you know, certain artists, certain groups get promoted, get patronized. Uh, but I realize, you know, as the discourse gets formed, right, uh, gets established via publications, exhibitions, and all that, mm-hmm. you realize that it's quite an exclusive group. An exclusive group. An exclusive group. Okay, okay. Yeah, sorry, can you come nearer to your to your mic? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Man. Yeah. You you realize that you know the the the, the initial formation of the Singapore art world it was quite an exclusive group, mm. right? So that's why I say it's not really a surprise huh? because if you talk about the art world, right, it has always been seen as an exclusive group. What what is that exclusivity like in one? What defined it, it yeah. as exclusive? Like, what was the differentiating factor with everyone else? Uh, exclusive in the sense that, first of all, these were the, the you know, the, the upper middle class kind mm. of social grouping. Okay. Where, you know, it extended from, from the British... Uh, societies, you know, whether they were the expatriates or whether they were working with the cultural policymakers, with the government leaders at that point of time. Uh, but, I mean, that's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. But the, and then the other not surprising thing was it tend to revolve around the English-speaking media. Okay. Right? So, so when you, as an historian, when you research, your reflect would be to research on English sources. Yeah. Right? But then you realize if you go deeper, right, uh, there's actually a whole, no, there's, there's not a whole, there's a few other art worlds that existed in Singapore but didn't really get traction mm-hmm. or didn't really get, you know, exposure because the whole discourse was dominated by this you know, this one or few social groupings of that time. Which, which is kind of ironic, you know, this language problem because, you know, yeah. believe it or not, the national language of Singapore is Malay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. And especially, especially if you're talking about back when in history, you know, it is more so than, than now, I guess. So for us to rely mostly on uh, English language publications yeah. and, you know, it's it's strange, actually, yeah. come to think of it. Yeah. In terms of actually, art history. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's even strange if you look at the, the you know, nation-building exercises of the 50s and 60s, right? Mm. There was this, you know, overt or... Significant push towards multiculturalism. Yeah. You know, I've I've come across like exhibition brochures and pamphlets where all the four languages would be published on the cover. Mm. You know, it looks all nice and hunky dory. You know, we talk about multicultural layer, right? Mm. But then we talk about you know you you project all the various languages on this English speaking discourse, mm-hmm. but then you avoid or seem to forget that you know there are all these other social groupings that exist outside this discourse right for example you know you don't look at Malay societies mm. that are or cultural societies that were producing mm. yeah you know whether it was a theatre piece whether it was an art exhibition whether, whether you know, it was some kind of uh, 
folk or craft mm. uh, exhibition, you know, it seems to be you know forgotten or just sidelined. Right. Right. Mm. And yeah. I think it's because, um, like you said, there is there was a kind of hierarchy of who had access to the art world, or was yes. it because most of the specialists did speak English and or they didn't interview um, artists perhaps that didn't speak English? Is it something like that? I think, I mean, if you talk about accessibility to language, I think it's a bit lazy. Mm. Mm. It's a bit of a lazy excuse because if you look at some of the earlier British community, like the the, the British scholars, mm-hmm. which some of us might call the Oriental scholars, right? mm-hmm. they were all efficient in in the language. You know, mm-hmm. you have people yes. like Rich, you have people like Richard Winstead. He wrote um, the English Malay dictionary for God's sake. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah. so. You know, it's, I mean, not all of them were government officers. Some of them came here to to assist with the setup of you know the education curriculum, yeah. the cultural curriculum. That's why you had art supervisors like Frank Sullivan and all these kind of people. So they had to you speak know, Malay, right? I mean, they 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 learn Malay. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I mean, free, it's, it's kind of yeah. a prerequisite if you are a yeah. sociologist or anthropologist studying. Yeah, uh, or immersing yourself in a different culture, you know, anywhere in the world, even today, right? Like you can't, yeah, say be an Egyptologist <laughs> without speaking the the language, even without uh, speaking the language of the Egyptians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or reading I mean, it. I mean, these were the these were the classical Salvation, you know, scholars where you know a prerequisite was to be a master of the language before yeah. you embark on your field work somewhere in the region. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe sorry, I, I just yeah. want to say, maybe, you know, we are talking about the past, right? But then if you look at yeah. the, the situation today, I yeah. think it has not differed, you know, in a sense where if you look at, let's say, Thailand, right? You know, the, yeah. the continuity in the conversation about art is there because the main language is Thai. You know, it started since uh, Silpa Birasi, you know, started the Italian guy, right? Started working there and then forming Silpacom University. And it's all in Thai and there's this continuity. There's no break or, or mistranslation. And then I guess same for Vietnam or Philippines or Malaysia, Indonesia. Most of the discourses are still in their own language. Whereas we had a switch of language. Right. Yes, yes. So probably yeah. that that was the the break or the disconnect, and then due to this break in language, we then engage uh, new scholars who predominantly use English, even though they are living here, even though they are Singaporeans. You know, like yeah. meaning that some of these people could be monolingual, even if they are local. You know, for example, you could be a, a local Singaporean, but you only speak English and not Mandarin or Malay or Tamil or any other local languages, right? Yes, right. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so, you know, on, on the Chinese side of things, right, of course, there's a whole corpus of scholarship about the Nanyang University, mm. right, mm. and how the Chinese educated scholars were sort of sidelined. I mean, they had the same problem as well, mm. right? In fact, you know, they, they had a bigger problem because, yeah, I mean, there's, there's the whole issue of, of um, 
you know, Nanyang University, and then the whole issue of Chinese educated scholars versus English educated scholars, the perception of, you know, who, who, which scholars were, were, um, sort of, you know, representing more the young Malayan, uh, more relevant, yeah. you know, uh, to, to Malaya and, you know, the newly emergent yeah. independent state of Singapore. You know, I uh, have, I feel like I have to share this thing. When I was an art student, this was uh, early 1990s in Singapore at the yeah. Nanyang Academy. I had many yeah. lecturers who were, uh, uh, like second generation Singapore artists like regarded as second or third generation and what was interesting then is that a lot of them they don't communicate with me in English you know they they, they speak to me in Malay <laughs> you know yeah. so yeah. that was really interesting because then they spoke to the Chinese students in Mandarin you know and then to those who can't speak Mandarin or Malay they would speak like some broken English <laughs> with them. Makes with, makes with broken Malay. Yeah, so that's kind of the reality actually. Until And this was 1990s. You know, it's yeah. not like 1960s or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, you know, language issue, we can talk until the cows come home, right? <laughs> and, and I think the policy makers are also starting to recognize that. Yeah. Mm. So that's why there's all this, you know, bilingual fund and all these kind of things mm. to sort of uh, what do you call that to salvage our <laughs> multicultural language, you know, diversity uh, sort of landscape. Mm. But for me, alongside language, it was also the idea of uh, institutionalizing art. Right? Mm. Uh, so when you talk about, you know, I noticed that earlier on in, in the art world discourse, a lot of the discourse were, were played out of carried along by institutions that were nearly forming up. And when I talk about institutions, really, it's beyond region. Mm. We're looking at the first art academy, of course, NAFA. Mm. And then uh, also institutions like major publishing press. Mm. Right? Like, for example, like, you know, individuals like Tony Bimish, for example, who wrote, I believe, the first uh, book like a general summary of the arts of Malaya mm-hmm. at that point of time. Okay. Right? I mean, these little, little books that were published by, by individuals like him. Mm-hmm. And then when you look through these kind of books, you sort of see the connection or the social network of the stakeholders of that point of time. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and also the first few articulations of how they understand art and how they want people to understand art. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, and people like Tony Bimish, they would also be everywhere. They weren't just publishing. Right? They they were doing, you know, radio shows. You know, there was this program called Radio Malaya. Yeah. Malaya. yeah. And he was doing like a weekly column talking about art. Yeah. Okay. Right? I mean, I have an access to 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 the the <laughs> the transcript mm-hmm. or the kind of, you know, talks or sessions that he had but mm. we imagine that in the 60s you know they had a weekly radio show talking about the arts of Malaya mm. right and these were all of course you know probably you know in English and 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 at the same time you know there was the University of Malaya back then at the Bukit Timah campus mm. and, you know he was friends with the librarian and the university museum director at that point of time so you start to see you know you start to make this 
web connections and you realize it's actually you know the handful of people that were sort of having their hands on on the discourse of mm. us at that point of time yeah yeah, yeah. So for me, it's been interesting trying to understand all this web, and then it makes you realize, ah, okay, now you understand why Singapore art history has been like that. Mm. I think underlying all of this, right? I feel now listening to you is that yep. number one accessibility, you know, of platforms like previously yep. radio, newspapers, you know, magazines, and all these people were reading more, uh, and then people want to know more things, and of course. You know, we were when Singapore became independent. There was still quite a strong presence of uh, British presence in Singapore. So a little bit yeah. of that culture of wanting to know about art, yeah. you know, still was around. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing is uh, a will, you know, uh, to to actually share this knowledge, you know, like without excuses. I mean, today if we we compare today to those days, we have so yeah. many more platforms. But yeah. the will to share meaningful knowledge and information about art itself, yeah. uh, not just the gossip of it, not just events listing, not just, you know, yeah. it's almost like lacking, right? It's, you know, yeah. sadly so. Yeah, and, and, people and, might say, yeah. yeah. I don't know, people, people might say that, oh, you know, Hafiz, you're, you're trying to blame the the westerners again or, or the British <laughs> or colonialism but actually you know like what like one of my professors say you know you, you if you look at the orientalist scholars right mm. like the British scholars some of them mm. you know you it's good to look at their data in fact we should be thankful to them for their data because mm. they were so prolific right they mm. were doing you know they were publishing books they were doing all these you know activities exhibitions mm. doing radio shows mm. but don't fall into the trap of their framework or their ideology. Mm. Right. So take yeah, what so, you would from it and use it to your own yeah. purpose. Yeah. And, yeah, and also, you know, it also happening. Yeah. yeah, and also I want to like go back to kind of the beginning of our conversation where you mentioned yeah. that you are doing this research on the Singapore art world within the Malay Studies Department of the National University of Singapore. And it reminds me of people I've met internationally who, okay. you know, like uh, were professors of economics, you know, professors of law, uh, so, uh, social science, uh, in places where, especially for the economics and law, you know, like the economics guy, I've, he even teaches at Stanford University, you know, and a university in Luxembourg. Uh, oh, okay. And I was very surprised that they don't belong to the art historical, you know, sort of faculty or even humanities. And yet their main research is art, you know, and now you mentioned data collection and, you know, public publishing all this information and they do that, you know, and we here, I think in Singapore or in Southeast Asia, I'm not sure, you know, like I haven't met an economics professor who specifically researchers on art you know for example yeah. you know yeah. what do you think of that do you, do you think that you know we are too narrow-minded in in thinking about you know those uh, disciplines you know to like if you are studying law then it should be purely 
you know whatever that pre- like exists at the moment to do with law you know and like art that yeah. you get what I mean yeah I mean one of the I mean and I've been quite guilty of this actually <laughs> I mean when I mean in the past I used to think like uh, you know you, you when you're in the art world and you just you know hang around with your art friends and you only art, read art catalogs and art books yeah. and then someone and then someone from academia writes about art right and yeah. like, okay here we go again you know one of them yeah. uh, you know writing about something but then you don't see these people in, in art shows and openings yeah. and, I mean it's a cheap shot now, actually yeah. come to think of it yeah. right but sometimes you know as as as, as I get more claustrophobic in our <laughs> artwork Yes. you know you you sort of forced to look elsewhere yeah. and then you know coincidentally when 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 I started this uh this program you sort of start to you know you get exposed to academics in the in academia who write about art but then they are not from the art world right? mm. and sometimes you realize they have new things to offer you know new lenses mm. uh, the some of the data some of the events or artists you talk about okay you know there's some uh space for debate and uh, you know some of the case studies but actually it's more of their framework their methodology and how they perceive art mm. right mm. and actually because they are not really embedded with the art world so to speak mm. embedded in the sense that people like us where we think and work with you know with the art world on a daily basis mm. they actually have fresh insights yeah. mm. Right. I, mean, I guess sometimes uh, when you're yeah. too close to the subject, right, you kind of yeah. lose that perspective. But but also at the same time, I mean, I'm interested in that as well. You know, like uh, I want to know how mathematicians talk about art. Yeah. But maybe maybe yeah. not as an art critic, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, that is yes. when I get yeah. It's thought, not about that. <laughs> when yeah. when when let's say a mathematician tries to become an art critic or, or writes in a way where you know it is uh, art critical in that sense right but more yeah. like okay is there or does there uh, does it exist in art you know something that is really hardcore mathematical yeah. that we could learn yeah. from like for example actual num- like numbers or formulas or yeah. something like this you know because the the economist yeah. that I met like he collects data like pure data you know with his team okay. so of course he has his opinion on art you know whose art is better whom he likes huh? yeah. but for him as a professional as an economist that's not his uh, uh, the issue that he would raise for the art world you know he would raise uh data to do with let's say artwork sales over the past 500 years in europe for example something yeah. like that and and then from there they try to map like a projection or something like this you know which is very interesting to look at and and, and yeah. most of the time art people don't go there you know because yeah. we don't have that knowledge you know uh, so yeah or oh, it's just our reflex you know because we are just surrounded by by you know things that we understand and things we are familiar mm. with we are not sort of inclined to go further mm. right mm. which is why i like this professor howard becker guy because mm. he doesn't pretend to be an art critic yes he calls himself a, a jazz pianist right <laughs> there's someone from the arts but actually when you see his book it's actually full of sociological terms oh. right he, he he said that you know he even said outright at the forward that this is not 
you know, if you if you're looking to 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 understand more artists or to know more artists or to see which American artist is doing groundbreaking work or which is like doing shit work, right? Mm. You say you'll be disappointed. This book is not about that. Mm. Yeah, so okay. he doesn't pretend to be a critic or an art historian. He was just being a sociologist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Hafiz. It's been yep. a great. 35 minutes we've been talking. Wow, okay. So we <laughs> and and we, we've, I think, only just started, right? Yeah, yeah. perfect. Yeah. So yeah. it calls for episode number two with you, <laughs> I guess. Yes. Okay, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you so I'm much, looking forward happens. to that if it happens. Right, yeah. Thank you so much. And, Thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks, Deborah. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye.